morning, church. Would you stand with me as we declare God's word? First Peter 3.18. Would you read this aloud with me? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let's praise him this morning, church. Remember those walls we call sin and shame They were like prisons that we couldn't escape But he came and he died and he rose Those walls are rubble now Remember those giants we call death and grave they were like mountains that stood in our way But he came and he died and he rose Those giants are dead now Oh yeah and This is our God, this is who he is He loves us This is our God, this is what he does Yeah. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Help me out, church. It's my firm foundation. The rock on which I stand When everything around me is shaken And I've never been more glad That I put my faith in Jesus he's never let me down He's faithful through generations so why would he fail now? He won't. This is my testimony. All right. 
I was just telling Stan backstage, do you know what that word hallelujah means? We just sang a song that says hallelujah. Do you know what that means? It just means we praise you. We praise you, and it's a word that, you, like, you can't do that on your own. You, you can't do that by yourself. You're going to need spectators to be able to praise somebody. So that is a word that only can be done as the body gets together. So when we say, I, we praise you, I need you to hear me praise him for it to be praised. Otherwise, it's just a compliment. And so when you sing the word hallelujah, you just understand that's a corporate word. It cannot be done by yourself in seclusion. It must be done with a body of believers together. And so we did what that song was saying. We praise you. Hallelujah. It can only be done in connection with people. Yeah. Good stuff. A fun fact, that's not my part of the message at all. Uh, welcome to Camriel Community Church. Uh, my name is David Hertel. I'm the lead pastor here. So glad that you are with us this morning on a dreary kind of wet morning. You made the right choice. You got up, and we have coffee for you, and we have coffee cup holders for you to keep you awake. And so utilize them and take your trash when we leave, because if you don't, we charge you. All right. And uh, welcome all those online. Listen, I know some people who work on Sundays and can't participate with our gathering, and that's why we do this, put all the production in there. Thank you for watching on Wednesday. We're glad that you're a part of our gathering. We see you, we love you, and you made the right choice by joining us online. Now, we got to jump in because I'm coming loaded, and i got to tell you, I don't know about you guys, but I am the king of the workaround. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the workaround, the king of the workaround. Like when you're stuck in a log jam on the freeway, do you just sit there and wait for the accident to clear up? Or do you get off the freeway at the nearest exit, get out your Apple iPhone app, and figure out how you can get around this sucker and get there faster? I am the king of the workaround. I'll admit it in front of anybody. Is anybody else with me? Raise your hand, king of the work. Only three of you. You're liars. The king of the workaround. I will find another way to get there. Uh, years ago, I uh, lived in the Bay Area, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Why I'm a Giants fan, why I'm a Niners fan, just the way it is. Born and raised there, and so that's my, my pay homage to those teams. I remember for several years, I worked at a church 10 years in the San Francisco Bay Area, East Bay of San Francisco, and I had season tickets to the Giants. Doesn't mean I went to every game. It just meant that every game I went to was free because I sold the rest of the tickets to whoever would buy them at the highest cost, which means my games are free. I would take my kids. And I would go, and I had figured out everything. I talk about the workaround. I figured out every way of getting that stadium cheaper, faster, funner than anybody else. I knew how to get the BART. I knew how to take the Muni for free because they don't check your ticket afterwards. I knew all that stuff. Not that you should do that, and your pastor didn't advocate for that. But the point is, I knew how to get there, home, fastest, whatever. I had found a parking spot at the Port of San Francisco, which is across the street from the stadium, where most people were paying $50 per, per, for their parking spot. I got mine for free at the Port of San Francisco, and I'm sure they don't want that on the internet for everybody else to know. But anyway, I, and, I, and I would go to the game, and then, you know, I figured out like the last three outs, I would stay right by the exit so I could get out fast and get in my car and go. Well, this particular game, uh, which, by the way, was undoubtedly a, a, a victorious win for the Giants, because every game I go to, they win. Does that happen for you? It happens for me. Anyway, so I'm leaving after a beautiful win. I'm running to my car, and I'm getting out, and the traffic's at a standstill. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is bad. Something's gone on. This is, this is really bad. Got all the 50,000 people in the stadium. There's like four, four on-ramps to get to the Bay Bridge to go to the East Bay. 
And, and most people are going to take the first three on-ramps because they're the closest, and those are the where the log jam is. And so I got my phone out, and I'm figuring out how to get to that fourth exit a little further away. But what you lose in miles, you make up in what? Time. Because all those folios are going to the first three, but... Your boy is taking the smart route going the fourth one. So I'm going all through San Francisco. If you know San Francisco, it's plenty of one-way streets. But now that I have an app, I can get there. All right. And I get to my, uh, my traffic light. And it's like yellow. But I say, you know what? I'm so far ahead of all the other folios. I'll just take the yellow. I'll sit here in my red light. And the next green light, I turn my directional indicator on. I'll take a left. And I'll go right onto the on-ramp, right onto the Bay Bridge, back to East Bay, 30 minutes away. Boom. And I beat everybody home. Right? That's my whole thing. And as it turns yellow and then it turns red and I'm waiting for my turn for it to turn, turn, turn green, the, the, the most horrible thing happens. Uh, only, it can only happen in San Francisco. An unfortunate series of circumstances that only can happen in San Francisco. And that is a police motorcycle cop comes to the center of the intersection with his lights on and tells everybody to stop. And now he's controlling traffic. And if, you, if you've ever been to San Francisco, I guarantee you've experienced this because San Francisco is like notoriously known for their demonstrations, uh, whether it's like a marathon walk or, I mean, there's demonstrations that I can't even describe to you because you'd be like, that should be illegal. And yet it's so clearly like, san- you know, sanctioned and permitted by San Francisco. And so when you see a police officer on a, on a, on a motorcycle cop stop driving, you're like, no, what kind of demonstration is it this time? Uh, and, and it's not unlike something that you would see when you have like, a, you know, some kind of a, a funeral or like a presidential motorcade. They're, they're escorting a crowd through or they're escorting, you know, 10 to 20. And I'm thinking to myself, I'll pay my respects. The Giants just won. Let 10 or 20 cars go through. No problem. I'll get on the, on the freeway and go. But to my amazement, this time, there is literally like 10,000 to 15,000 people on bicycles going through San Francisco. It is so clearly take your bike to work day in San Francisco. And then afterwards, let's marathon through San Francisco. And I'm watching wall-to-wall bikes just go by. And you're wondering how in the world they're not like tumbling over each other like a, you know, like dominoes or anything, because there's so many of them. And they're just going by for 20 minutes. <laughs> so much for my workaround. I mention that today because many of us can recognize, can, re, can resonate with a workaround mentality, and, and sometimes it just doesn't work. And I bet all of us know that when we try a workaround mentality with God, it never works. Today we're going to be diving into and exploring this idea of working around in a spiritual sense. What motivates us to do such a thing? What excuses do we make in our spiritual workarounds? And why do we assume everything will be just fine? Why is it that we feel the need to find spiritual workarounds in the first place? And what do we find in the end? Are spiritual workarounds necessary since we are bringing ancient traditions into the modern day? And did God leave us any loopholes to exploit? That's where we're going to be today. I challenge you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12 as we explore this idea of the spiritual workaround. Open up your Bible right now. Open up your app. If you're online, open up a window and get there with us. Dive in. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12 verses 1 through 15 together in total. 
And the overarching question today is, why is it that we attempt spiritual workarounds in our relationship with God? Why is it that we attempt spiritual workarounds in our relationship with God? Now, obviously, uh, when there's traffic, now the reason I'm doing this, I'm trying to get home faster. Why do I do this same activity as relates to spiritual things with God? And the first thing we're going to see is because we think his ways are outdated. And if you're just honest right now, you'd probably go, yeah, I've thought that one or two times. Why would I do a rook around on God's way? Well, because I think his ways are outdated. I mean, this is an ancient book, thousands of years old. It can't, can't so clearly apply to today. We think his ways are outdated, and that is something that's not new to us. In fact, people struggled with this 5,000 years ago in the Old Testament as well. And that's what we're going to see, how they thought his ways are outdated is not a new concept. Let's look in chapter 12, verses 1 through 5 together. Why don't you watch as I read as it says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and I've made a king over you. Now behold, the king walks before you. I'm old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day, and here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, that being the new king that was, he just anointed, Saul. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have, who, whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And the idea is right now. And they said, you have defrauded, you have, you, you have not defrauded us, nor oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hands. And he said to him, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed, the king, Saul himself, is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Why is it that we attempt spiritual workarounds in our relationship with God? Well, because we think his ways are outdated. Uh, we've been in this theme here for a, a couple weeks now as we go through chapters 10, 11, and 12 of a transition in leadership in Israel. And really what's happening is there's a transition in political leadership. Uh, Samuel's still going to be around, and he's still going to be a prophet of Israel. In fact, he's going to end up uh, anointing David, the future king. So he's still going to be around, but he's not going to be in political leadership anymore. He'll, ne he'll no longer be the political leader. In the days of old, the days of judges, God was the king, and God appointed judges over the lands, and that's how they would rule the land. God king, judges would rule the land. Samuel is going to be the last judge. The era of the judges is over, and the kingly era has begun. And here's Samuel formally acknowledging it. I will subside, he will gain more influence, and he will rule over you. That's what's, what, what's happening. But there's almost like a juxtaposition, like you are, 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 are substituting the leadership. You wanted a king, we gave you a king. And in, in essence, you're saying, I don't want God and Samuel to rule over us anymore. I want a human king to rule over us instead. And God gave you that. But before I step down, I just want to rehearse for you what kind of leader I've been for you. The testimony of godly leadership. 
Samuel seems to seek out an affirmation of his innocence, a public exoneration. Let's put me on trial, as it were, and, and just, let's just get it all out in the open right now. Is there anything that I've done while I've been leading you that you could say has disqualified me or defiled me from leadership? And there seems to be a little bit of a defensive tone in it. Like, I don't believe I've done anything wrong. And so he asks, have you ever detected any moral or spiritual flaw in my life or leadership? By the way, could you ever say that? Like, have you ever detected anything wrong in me? I'm so confident of my character that I can put it on public display right now. Stand up anybody who has something against me. That's what he's doing. Or is there any covenant stipulations that I've violated as I've ruled over you, as I've been a judge? He says, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? How many of you could say that? I haven't taken anybody's. Actually, I could say that. I don't, I've never touched an ox. I've never touched a donkey. But what he's saying is there's anything of material that I've ever taken from somebody else. Which, interestingly enough, depending on what translation you have, it might not say donkey, which is quite funny, but we'll leave that right there. That's funnier than you gave it, but whatever. We'll keep on going. Is there anybody that I've ever received a bribe from? I haven't taken anything from anybody. I've never received a bribe from anybody. Has there anything I've done to disqualify me from the role that I've had? Now, this is interesting. Why is he bringing this up? Well, actually, I, I want to take a look back at verse 2. Maybe we can put it back on the screen together. Because he says something that we just kind of skip past, if you don't look closely. Verse 2, and now, behold, the king walks before you. I'm old and I'm gray. And behold, my sons are what? My sons are with you. What is he saying? I mean, I get the king. Okay, I'm, I'm no longer in charge. The king's in charge. I'm a little old anyway, so if my time is over. Why does he say, and my sons are with you? In fact, if you, have a, if you have a highlighter right now, highlight that, circle that, underline that. My sons are with you. What is he bringing up? Well, I think actually he's referring to his own leadership, and I'll tell you why. If you remember back to the early on in the series in 1 Samuel, if you are here for the very first weeks, chapter 1 and chapter 2, there was a guy named Eli. He was a priest. In fact, Hannah had a child named Samuel. She gives Samuel, if God, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him into your service. She has a child. She gives Samuel. She gives it over to this guy named Eli. And Eli raises Samuel, and then he becomes the leader of Israel. Why does he become the leader of Israel? Well, the reason he becomes the leader of Israel is because Eli had two sons. And his two sons were doing wicked things. If you remember back to the beginning of the series, first of all, they were sleeping with the women in the temple. These women that came to serve the temple, they were sleeping with them. That's a big no-no, obviously. Number two, they were eating the choicest meat of the sacrifice that was reserved for God. They ate it themselves. The problem with the whole thing was that Eli never sat his children down. In fact, we believe that he actually ate of the sacrifices with his sons. I never touched the woman, I never stole the sacrifice, but I did eat the meat with them. And that's why he gets sat down, and that's why Samuel rises to prophetic leadership over all of Israel. Now, when we come back later on in the story, in chapter 8, we find out that Samuel's sons are doing wickedness too. Eli's sons did wickedness, he didn't set them down. Samuel's sons does wickedness, and what does he do in chapter 8? 
Well, what's the wickedness? They were taking bribes. And here he says, I've never taken a bribe. And in the beginning, go back to verse 2. It says, what? And my sons are with you. You know what he's saying? When my sons took bribes, I learned from Eli when he didn't sit down his sons. My sons took bribes and I set them down. They're not in leadership. They're not up here with me leading over you. They're down there with who? You. You. I have nothing on my account that you could bring against me. I've never stolen anything. I've never taken a bribe. And my very sons who would be so easy to throw a blind eye to their actions, I made sure I set them down. What do you have against me? Would have been very easy to throw a blind eye to his child's behaviors, but he didn't. And by the way, there's a very prominent pastor who recently went down, not for his own character and actions, but because of the way he handled his child in a favoritistic manner and not protecting the church. That went in public, and he had to resign. What he's saying is, there's nothing on my resume, my resume of my character that you can pin back on me and say that I've done anything wrong. I'm so confident of it that I would say publicly, stand up and bring it to me, and if there's anything that I've taken, I will right the wrong right now. And all of Israel says unequivocally, you have done nothing wrong, Samuel. We agree with you in your assessment and your claim of exemplary conduct and character who can be likened to no one else except for Moses himself, Numbers 16, 15. The people readily agree and testify to his exemplary character and conduct. And the idea here is this is what you're giving up. You had God as king and you had me as a righteous judge and you're giving that up for a human king. Foul that in the back of your brain for the next 60 chapters and let's see what happens next. I warned you in Samuel chapter 8, the kings will take from you. I've never taken anything from you. And yet you're replacing me and God for a human king and for that you will be disappointed in the future. Sometimes we think that his, ancient, his ways are ancient and outdated, but as it turns out, our new and contemporary waves can bite us in the butt eventually. And that's what Israel is going to be figuring out. Why is it that we attempt spiritual workarounds in our relationship with God? Because we think his ways are ancient and outdated, and yet at the same time, our ways are not much better. Usually his ways are always better. But we think they're outdated sometimes in our mind. Number two, because we think we've found a loophole. Either I just think it's outdated and needs to be brought to contemporary times, or I found a loophole. Like God left a loophole in the contract and I can maneuver this way. I found a work around. That's what we're going to see in verses 6 through 15. Let's read along together. I'll read you, watch, it's on the screen, or open your Bible and get there. Verse 6 It says, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he had performed for you and for your fathers. And then he gives a list. 
When Jacob went to Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this, in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and they sold them into the hand of Sesera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and the land of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served uh, the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we could serve you. He's reminding them of how this all went down. The Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, most recently the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when our Lord God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you will feel the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against his commandments of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you, will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. These principles not only apply to you, but apply to your king as well. Why is it that we attempt spiritual workarounds in our relationship with God? Because we think we found a loophole. And I think you're probably thinking, how in the world did you get a loophole out of that? Let me explain to you how I get this. First of all, we have a huge summation of the history of Israel. It's like Samuel's farewell speech, and and in his farewell speech, I'm still going to be around as a prophet for sure, but in my farewell of political leadership, I just want to kind of paint a picture for you of what's happened over the generations. And verses uh, uh, 6 through 12 cover about 800 to 850 years. It's a historical picture of Israel's relationship with God. There's a redemptive cycle that's happened throughout all these generations and throughout the period of the judges. And the cycle looks like this. God redeems them out of Egypt. That's verses 6 through 8. They find themselves disobedient in covenant violation during the time of the judges. That's verses 9 through 11. They cry out to God in repentance for serving other gods, verse 10, and God delivers them through Barak, the the most celebrated of the judges in chapter 11. If you want to take notes here, what you want to realize is that there's a cycle of redemption that happens in the Old Testament. It's very cyclical in nature. You can see it all across the Old Testament. It goes like this. Rebellion, which leads to retribution, which leads to repentance, which leads to restoration. Israel would rebel, God would would respond with retribution, Israel would then repent, and God would respond with restoration. In fact, you can see the very same picture in us. We rebel, sometimes there's restitution, uh, retribution, we repent, and God restores. Two things are apparent in this cycle of redemption. Number one, God alone is the one who rescues his people from foreign oppressors. Number two, God rescues his people in response to their prayers and repentance. God's the one who always comes and rescues, and he does so 
when his people pray and repent. So where's the loophole in this? Here's the thing. That's the pattern of the Old Testament. For generations, Joshua would write, when Israel win, God's win. It's not Israel's victory, it's God's victory. It's the king who gets the credit for the victory. God was their king. And the pattern of the Old Testament was, when there was an affront brought your way, you were to look internally and say, why is God allowing this? And as you look internally, you would repent over whatever it is that you have been dabbling into, that God would need to pay you restitution for it. And then in response to your prayers and repentance, God would restore. But something changes in our text. He says all that from verses 6 all the way up through verse 11. And then in verse 12, which I want to bring your eye back to. Maybe we can put it back on the screen. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, come against you, you said something different this time. Rather than going through that cycle of restoration and redemption that we've seen so many times in the Old Testament, you said, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, they switched it. This is the part in the story where we're supposed to go, oops, sorry, God, we repent, we're sorry, we're, we're coming back and crying out to you, and then God restores. This time they said, hey, how about this? How about we make God not our king, set him aside, put a human king in there, and he can solve all these problems for us without us having to do what? Repent and cry out to God. They found a loophole. If we just have a king, we can solve all these problems without having to rely on God. That's why the asking of the king was such an affront to God and to Samuel. We'll just set you guys aside. We don't need you. We'll do it our way. We found a loophole. So you have the summation of the history of Israel, the redemptive cycle that seems to be, there's an attempt to thwart the uh, redemptive cycle of the Old Testament of rebellion, retribution, repentance, and restoration. There's a workaround in place, or there is a, attempt at a workaround in place, and yet, while they're seeking out the workaround, they're going to realize that nothing changes. I want to go back to verses 14 and 15. Let's put that back on the screen, or you can look at it in the Bible that you have with you. You do all this, you got your king, God appeased you, and yet nothing changes. Look at this. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord your God and serve him and obey his voice, and not rebel, rebel against his commandment of the Lord. By the way, that's the, that's the Mosaic Covenant. You follow, I will guide and protect and provide. And if you both, and you and your king who reigns over you, follow the Lord your God, then it will go well. That's the Mosaic Covenant, which was written many years prior. But if you will not obey the voice of your Lord your God and rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king you may have thought you thwarted the whole thing. You may have thought you found a loophole, but nothing has changed. The Mosaic Covenant's still there. When you have your king and he disobeys or you disobey, guess what? God was the one who was bringing victory in the battle. So the same thing's going to happen. Nothing changes. You place yourself underneath his word, his guidelines. You place yourself underneath, you find blessing. You don't do that, you don't find blessing. Nothing changes. Now, I know you got this king, and he got you, got you a victory, and now it's your choice. You can decide that was a human achievement 
devoid of divine enablement, or you can realize it was God the whole time, whether you have a king or you don't have a king. He's always been king. He's always been sovereign. The conditions of the Mosaic covenant still remain. Blessing comes through obedience to God, and the way of consequences comes through disobedience, even for the king himself. What he's basically saying on my farewell speech is you need to have a covenant renewal with inside of all of you. In fact, there's all kinds of covenant renewal terminology in this chapter. Even with the installment of the king, still fear God, still serve God, still obey God, or you will see the consequences. So whether it's thinking that God's methodology is outdated or whether we think we can find a loophole or work around, the nation of Israel found that the path to true blessings never changes. The path to true blessing never changes, which brings me to the big idea. It'll be on the screen. It says this, sometimes we may take a detour in life, but the way to blessing remains unchanged. Sometimes we take a detour in our lives, might be in a detour right now, but the way to blessing remains unchanged. Whether we're in a detour, going into a detour, coming out of a detour, the way to blessing remains unchanged. The truth is that the nation of Israel asked God for a human king. And in doing so, they knew that they were out and out rejecting God in the process. But also, it's true that God obliged this request, still offering his hand of favorable relationship to them. Praise God for his sovereign and yet permissive will. Permits us to take detours sometimes, and yet he's still sovereign over that activity. And the analogy goes this way, just as Israel took a detour and said, we don't want you, God. God said to them, I'm still here, and the way the blessing is still remains unchanged. And so we, when we take detours with God, know that we have a God who can forgive when we respond repentantly. The way to blessing remains unchanged. Repent, follow me, follow my word, and you will find true blessing. Sometimes... Just like Israel, we take a detour in our life, but the way to blessing remains unchanged. You know, I remember a situation that I experienced uh, some 15 to 20 years ago in a church prior to Camarillo Community Church. It's still kind of amazed that I can say that. I've been doing this for so long, and there was a couple in our church, they were just about to get married. And these guys didn't have the typical kind of religious background or the typical church story. They didn't have the privilege of growing up in the church. They didn't have anybody in the direct families who could represent Christianity to them. They were grown up, explored, and, and devoured the ways of the world. Now they're in their mid-30s. Somehow they found themselves at a church. Both had come to faith apart from knowing each other. And both, while falling in love with God, have found each other and fell in love with each other. The wedding day had come along, and the bride had called for the pastor for a time of prayer. It's not something that's irregular. Sure, she was nervous about the ceremony, saying things correctly, the people who would be watching, and, of course, the commitment of a lifelong nature was also something that's a bit nerve-wracking. But she was more nervous about the wedding night. 
And she wanted prayer. And the pastor who had known her for years, had a long relationship with her, was a shepherd, introduced her to Christ, just asked her, can I just ask why you're nervous about this? Like, I mean, both her and her husband had, had been involved in multiple countless, countless individuals, countless relationships in a worldly manner. So, so what are you so nervous about? She said, sure, I've had plenty of previous experience, but I'm, never nerv- but I'm nervous because I've never done it God's way. Here, her and her husband, her future husband-to-be, were about to get married, and they hadn't seen each other in an intimate way. And while she was very, very good at the ways of the world, she had never done things this way. And so she was nervous. God had even restored to her the nervous jitters of intimacy at the prospect of doing things God's way. It's the blessing of doing things his way, that you are not spoiled goods, but that God can redeem you despite the detours of the past. That sometimes we take detours in life, but the way to blessing remains unchanged. That God, in his permissive will, can have allowed everything over here in the past the things that we file in the back of our brain in a closet with 15 padlocks we don't like to think about it because the, the shame associated with it. God, in his permissible, can have allowed all that and yet cover it by the blood of Jesus Christ so that the way a blessing remains unchanged no matter what is back here. I don't care how atrocious it is. I don't care what it is. I could go to death row and preach the same message and it's applicable to them as well. The way to blessing remains unchanged. And if you've had a detour, that doesn't disqualify you from God. It just makes you a bigger and better candidate for his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his pardon, his blessing. As long as you're willing, this is Old Testament and New Testament here, as long as you're willing to repent. You come to God, I haven't measured up to you. I repent over that. I'm sorry for that. I ask for your forgiveness in that, and I'm moving forward away from that. Sometimes that's cold turkey, and sometimes that's a little bit of a roller coaster ride, but I'm moving away from it. You've called me to something else. Sometimes we take detours in life, but the way to blessing remains unchanged. I wonder if there's anybody in the room today who's ready to give up the spiritual workarounds. Like, are you here ready to give it all back to him? No longer hiding or holding back. Ready to bring things out and into the light in order that you might strive towards righteousness. Or maybe you're here and your entire life has been a detour because you've never been introduced to this God that you can submit your life to. Do you know that you can be made right with God today? whether you are a believer in Christ who found yourself in the midst of a detour or you're somebody who's completely new to this thing, you're like, I feel like my whole life's been a detour. The solution remains the same. It's to repent in the name of Christ, believe on him, that you will either be saved because you believe in his life, death, and resurrection. Romans 10, 9 says, if you 
believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. That's why we do this every week where we say, does anybody want to confess today? Those are the two requirements. Believe in your heart and confess it with your mouth. If you want that today, it could be yours. You could be in the family of God. You may have taken a long detour, but now you're in the family of God. It remains the same. Grace and mercy through Christ. And if you're here and you're a believer and you find yourself in the midst of a detour, do you know there's probably people who are praying for you in anguish asking God to move? Do you know that you could make yourself right with him today? So I'm done with the detour. I'm giving it all back to you. And if you're a believer, I'm going to ask you to take another step. Would you tell somebody? Somebody you trust, somebody you love, somebody you know that loves you. Somebody who could be that accountability for you. Hey, you remember what happened that day and you said you were going on this trajectory? I'm just here to hold you to it because I love you. To get yourself out of that detour and back on the path of God. To say, you know what, I'm going to place myself under the word of God. I'm going to place myself right here and trust that his ways are better. And trust that true blessing comes from him and not from anything I can do on my own. No more assuming this is outdated. No more saying that, that I found a loophole. No, I'm just going to place myself underneath. It's not just an on-ramp to avoid traffic. It's an on-ramp to the blessed life. Whenever you see the word blessing in Scripture, you just need to think of the word happy. That's what it means, happiness. You want to be happy? Place yourself under the Word of God, and you'll find true happiness. Even if the journey for the next couple years are hard, I guarantee you take it to the bank You'll never prove God wrong in your life if you follow his word. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes with me right now. If you're new to us, I try to reserve some time where God might talk to your heart and your soul. There's nothing magical in me. If you're sensing anything of a powerful nature, that might be the spirit of God. I don't know who you are. I don't know your situation. Sometimes people say, man, you're speaking right to me. I, I, I don't have any knowledge of any of that but I do know a God who tends to move in these settings. Are you here? I've taken a detour my whole life and I'm ready to give him all my life. Everything I've tried has worked out in a sour fashion. I'm ready to give God a shot. For the first time, this whole religious thing is new to me. I don't even know what to do, but I know that I, I think I want to respond right now. If that's you, man, we would love to know about it. At the end of the gathering today, you'll see a little... QR code on the screen, zap that thing and let us know what's going on with you. We'd love to get you your first Bible. We'd love to be a part of your spiritual journey. And if you're a believer and you caught yourself in a detour, a workaround with God, would you just consider right now if he's calling you back? Think of the people who are praying for you even right now in this room. I know they're praying for me. Are you ready to cut out the detour? I'm going to assume that's you, and I'm going to pray for you right now. Father, the greatest blessings of this earth and this world come in obedience to your word. Father, the greatest blessings of this world and this earth 
come in obedience to your word. And there will be a day where we stand before you and you will prove to us, no matter how big the house is, no matter how big the second house is, or the white picket fence, or the vacations, the greatest blessings of anything in this world that we will take with us to eternity are obeying your word, trusting in you, and waiting on you to deliver. For whatever we deliver pales in comparison to who you are. Would you give somebody in this room the courage to exit a detour and find true blessings in Christ? I ask in the name of your son. Amen. There are people praying for you. I know right now for our team this year, we're doing plus one. So we're praying for one person who doesn't know Jesus. We're praying for one person to be able to serve and get involved. And we're praying for one miracle or something that seems completely impossible and revisiting those every week so that we can also rejoice and watch what God is doing. And speaking of what God is doing, we're gonna move into our time of giving, but I wanted to share this with you. This, is, this came up in our staff meeting, and um, when you give, I don't know if you realize this, but you are investing into the next generation. I wanted to share some numbers with you, and each of these numbers are people, are lives with a purpose that are important to the Lord. 47 in nursery through pre-K. That's phenomenal. 70, and this is from our staff meeting from the week before, 70 K through third graders. That just sounds unbearable. 70. We have an amazing staff and pastoral team, y'all. I tell you that. 32 fourth through fifth graders, which I think is the biggest that we've ever had. And then the middle school all-nighter, 102 middle schoolers. Isn't that awesome? So when you give, you are investing into the next generation. And if you all came out and saw what the middle school had set up, they need you to invest because they had like millions of dollars worth of things that people could do at the all-nighter. And then 84 high schoolers, which I think is also a record. So it's just phenomenal of what's happening here and you're giving, investing into the next generation. Something else that we were able to do on Friday was uh, team up with Seven Seas. Um, so Elaine, Sam, our uh, K through three, and then um, two parents of Los Primeros. Los Primeros is really going through a heavy season right now, church. And it could really use your prayers of losing a teacher and then losing a student in a, a completely unfortunate way. But we were able to take them and their staff lunch on Friday and let them know that they're loved and appreciated. So as you continue to give, as we give through worship, you are investing and God is moving. So would you pray with me? Lord, we are just so grateful for what you're doing here. 
And God, we look forward to how you're gonna continue to move. So Lord, I just pray that we would offer to you what is already yours. And Lord, that you would multiply it, triple it. God, use it for your glory. We love you and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus and the church said, all right, check out what's coming up. Hey, good morning, CamCC. I'm Ed Lane, and I serve in the worship ministry here at church. I am so glad you are here with us today. If today is your first time with us, welcome. We have a gift just for you, a $5 Starbucks gift card for that black tea lemonade you love so much. All you do is grab a connection card, fill it out, and take it to the welcome counter out there in the lobby. Or you can scan this with your phone and let the welcome counter know that you filled it out digitally, and they will still hook you up. If it happens to be your second time visiting us here at church, welcome back. Check this out. You get a $10 gift card to In-N-Out Burger. We will also invite you for an all-you-can-eat dessert with our pastors, elders, and staff. Easy peasy. Just let us know it's your second time out there at the welcome counter and it's yours. Or if you're watching online, go to camcc.net slash next steps. There are a lot of great things coming up at CamCC. Who will you invite to come along with you? June 18 to 23rd, Friathon High School Summer Camp. Outgoing eighth graders to graduating seniors. Take my word for it, you are going to love this week at Lake Tullock. Wakeboarding, tubing, giant inflatable water slide, trampoline, the best food you've ever had. Believe me, you are going to truly build lifelong friendships and memories. The absolute best week of your year. Sign up soon before there's no more space. For more info, contact Jacob at camcc.net or register at camcc.net slash friathon. Saturday, July 15th, ladies' summer evening hike from 6 to 8 p.m. Close out a summer evening as you listen to the birds and enjoy a warm evening walk in nature. Hike around three to four miles, moderately difficult, shouldn't be too bad. Contact Allie Smith to sign up at allison at camcc.net. August 11th to 14th, Middle School Catalina Summer Camp. Enjoy kayaking, snorkeling, hiking, games, prizes, and more on the beautiful island of Catalina. This will be a week you do not want to miss, so be sure to register right now. That includes you, incoming sixth graders, as well. At camcc.net slash Catalina, or more info, contact Jacob at camcc.net. To stay in the loop of what is going on at CamCC, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more info on any of these events, go to camcc.net. My name's Abby Lundberg, and I'm, I'm our new director of our hospitality team. So today I thought it was a great, great reminder that our purpose in life is to please God, and that all that we do is for Him, and we need to foc our, focus our focus on him. Um, if you are new with us, please make sure to get your gifts at the welcome counter as you head out. And this week, pray and think about who you're going to invite next week to join us. Um, please join us to hang out on the patio with coffee and donuts, and we'll see you next Sunday.